Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Community Church in Springfield, Missouri. Christ Community features life-giving, verse-by-verse teaching from the Bible. If you would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. Bibles turn to Romans 1. So we started with Romans this month, and my sincere goal was that I would be able to take large chunks at a time so that I could get through this book, you know, at least in a couple years. What do I do? Is it today I'm covering one verse? I simply could not get any further than one verse. So I calculated how long it would take me to get through Romans. And I figured 2031 would be the day in which I am done. So you know all that talk about retirement? Apparently that's not going to happen. At least anytime soon, i got to get through Romans. So I doubt that there is another topic more despised, denied, and rejected by atheists, by progressives and critics of Christianity than the idea that God expresses wrath over the sin of humankind. The famous philosopher and atheist Bertrand Russell, who lived... He actually died, I think, in the 70s. Probably in the philosophical field, um, at the top of the heap in terms of philosophical atheists. He said this, There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. What a sentence right there, just in and of itself. Whatever comes afterwards doesn't really matter. But to say there's a defect in Christ's moral character, that's something else. Um, And that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. (laughs) Certainly, Christ, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. And one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane toward the people who would not listen to him. And it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take that line than to take the line of indignation, end quote. Let me suggest that people give an unintentional tip of the hat to God's moral order by despising God's wrath. Because they recognize to make such a judgment, they are a moral creature. Now, supplanting God's justice for their own morality, but they're doing so as a moral creature. They actually give evidence of their morality, even though they deny the moral order given by God. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, it's like, 
a man sitting down enjoying a meal and saying, there's no thing like a cook. Well, where did the food come from? And where did the morality come from, right? The twisted sense of human wrath gives evidence that we are moral creatures, bearing the image of God and created in a moral universe. You know, there is public condemnation for sexual harassment by men in powerful positions. There's an outrage in our society over racial injustice. There is denunciation of big pharma's market manipulation of drug prices. There is anger over political entities using children to propagate a sexual ideology that victimizes and brutalizes them. Our society is traumatized by mass shootings that we just recently had another. People are revolted because they see things that are really wrong. Society has wrath over certain evils. Society, however, does not want God's wrath. God's wrath is not an emotion that flares up haphazardly, but it's a pure expression that comes from his holiness. Instead of being a temper tantrum, God's wrath is expressed on behalf of all people and describes his enmity against all wrongs. Humans want selective wrath that condemns others, certainly not ourselves. God's wrath is perfect, not a respecter of persons, and people hate him for it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The theological definition of God's wrath is a punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation of sin. That bears repeating. A punitive outworking of God's righteous indignation of sin. Listen, Paul's goal in this immediate passage in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is not to give the gospel, but to show us the need of the gospel. So he spends these first three chapters doing so. The idea of a God of wrath and judgment is offensive to man's sensibilities. A couple Greek words can be used for wrath. One is an emotional response. That is not the one used here. The other word for wrath is used in Romans 1, orge, which is a settled, controlled response. And in God's case, perfect, never wavering or compromised. Again, this is not human wrath, which is often a distorted ref reflection. This does not mean a capricious, uncontrolled anger 
This is not a God who flies off the handle or is spiteful. Now, people today always like to showcase wrath and then say, well, the opposite is love, and that's not correct. It's not love, because God is both. The opposite of wrath is neutrality in the midst of moral conflict. God is not neutral. His wrath is his holy hostility to evil. And we see it in our society reflected even in our cinema. Consider Quentin Tarantino. His movies hit on a nerve because they provide the audience with a dose of vindication to real societal issues. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood reacts to the Manson murders. And there's a sense of, yeah, get him. Or consider Django reacts to slavery. Or Inglorious Bastards reacts to the Nazis. Now these are flawed representations of needed justice. God's holiness is perfect and his justice is perfect and his wrath is a response to the depth of human depravity. Listen, take God's character out of the picture, forget his holiness and justice, forget about the depravity of humans, and wrath just sitting by itself would seem cruel. But Paul's point is that we live in a world where God does exist and his wrath is real. Now many argue that the Old Testament is about wrath and the New Testament is about Jesus and love trying to eradicate the New Testament and Jesus from holiness and wrath. And it's a foolhardy exercise, all right? Frankly, it's mostly religious progressives that do this where they try to extricate God's wrath from the New Testament. And at least at this point, atheists are more intellectually honest on this point because like I read with Russell, they recognize the biblical record of wrath in the New Testament. But of course, they deny the deity of Christ and the existence of God, so pick your poison, all right? Religious progressives prop up the idea of God, but it is not the God revealed in scriptures and by Christ. It's instead this deistic, therapeutic, contrived God. Little g. God conveyed his wrath against sinful mankind in the past. In the days of Noah, he destroyed mankind with the flood, except for eight people, Genesis 6 and 7. In the days of Abraham, he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, with only Lot and his family escaping in Genesis 18 and 19. He destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the sea as they pursued the Israelites in Exodus 14. And he poured out his wrath against pagan kings such as Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. 
God's wrath is clearly communicated in the Old Testament and in the New. Jesus cleansed the temple because he was incensed at the money changers who made his father's house a house of merchandise or money and a robber's den. Those who reject the offer of the gospel are going to face Christ's judgment. John wrote, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus clearly understood that divine judgment was a part of the plan for Jerusalem. He said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for those are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to him who he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, that's a tricky verse. Jesus, of course, is the agent for the Father, doing his judgment in the prophetic scheme. Now, the Father is not set apart completely from judgment or alienated from it, but he delegates the task to Christ. And we know that in the future, there will be a Bema seat judgment where all believers will stand before Christ, not for the purpose of condemnation, but having their works evaluated for the purpose of rewards. And then all of those who have rejected the gospel will stand before Christ in the final resurrection at the great white throne judgment and be condemned to eternity without him. The Father committed all judgment unto the Son. And this is a verification that the Son is being equal in honor to the Father. John 8.15 gives another interesting twist. And I give you these because they appear problematic, but I think once you take a closer look, they're really not. He said, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. This is Jesus speaking. Well, I thought we just read where he's judging. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. You look at the context, and Jesus is comparing himself with the Pharisees. The Pharisaical judgment was all too human, based on superficial appearances. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the kind of judgment I do. I don't do that judgment. His judgment is totally unlike the Pharisees, but it's perfect, unbiased, total, divine. The idea that Jesus has nothing to do with judgment or the wrath of God is patently false. 
Here are some other New Testament passages. And as I read this, I want you to ask yourself the question, these are not, you know, ambiguous, okay? And how do people get away with propagating the idea that the New Testament and Jesus have nothing to do with judgment? But listen to these. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16.22. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5.6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Colossians 3. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Often in the bullseye of people's condemnation of God's wrath is Psalms 137.9 that says, Blessed is he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Like, whoa, hold your horses there, right? But without any kind of historical context, without any understanding of God, it might seem cruel. Now, what we know is that Babylon was used by God to discipline his people. And apparently, they went beyond what they were asked to do to the Jews. They killed their infants. They treated them with brutality. Um, Babylon took it too far. They abused the elderly, murdered babies and children, violated the women. Now I ask you, anybody who has a child or, or, or a sister, and that person is raped and killed, are you going to want justice? Um, it's at that point you understand justice to face the perpetrator. See, the, the psalmist is wanting God to execute his justice in the face of his people being brutalized. Lord, judge the Babylonians. Now, he puts it in God's hands. He's just saying what he would like, even though this is definitely like an eye for an eye kind of thing, right? But ultimately, it is God's responsibility, but I'm letting you know what I'm asking, okay? There, there's a desire by all humans for justice, but God executes his justice perfectly. God is perfect in his judgments because it is based upon his righteousness. When we face the reality of God's judgment and the reality of our sin, the result of our sin, what happens? Salvation becomes all the more sweet. Paul's going to get there in Romans, but we got a lot of stuff to go through first to understand the severity of sin for the human race. Listen, wrath is essential to divine righteousness, just as love and mercy are. God could not be free from wrath 
unless he were also free from all concern about his moral universe. Men reject the idea of a holy God because God holds them accountable for their sin. And people do not want to relinquish their sin. And this is the judgment. The light that has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3. Notice at our central passage in Romans 1 that this wrath is from God, revealed from heaven. It is a divine wrath, not of man. It is a holy wrath that cannot tolerate evil. It is a righteous wrath, not tainted by pettiness or cruel retaliation. And it's a wrath directed toward Paul says, ungodliness. This refers to offenses against God. Ungodliness is a lack of reverence, a lack of devotion and worship of the true God. Now, in terms of God's nature, that really is what sets the plumb line. That defines what is good. This is not a capricious, arbitrary standard. If Let's say, if God were a liar then lying would be righteous. But God is a God of truth. Therefore, lying is contrary to his character, and that's sin. I would suggest to you that a God of love must hate anything that harms whom he loves. A God of love must take action to protect the innocent against the malicious. A God of love declares certain actions off limits. If you have a law without consequences, is that a good law? God's wrath is directed toward the ungodly. Jude reports that Enoch, the righteous seventh generation descendant of Adam, prophesied about God's coming to execute judgment upon all, Jude 14 and 15. And to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things with which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a lot of ungodlies in there. It describes the focus of God's wrath upon sinful mankind. God's wrath is also directed towards the unrighteousness. Um, and that refers to the sins of man against man. Every human has an inclination to resist God, and this leads to misbehavior towards other human beings. So the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humankind contributes to what Paul says is a suppressing of the truth. And that's the truth of our sin. You know, in secular Greek, the word that was used was used of a helmsman holding the course as his boat battled through wind and current. And Paul was careful to use a word that that conveyed the sheer determination on the part of mankind to stand firmly against truth, to hold rigidly to the opposition of it. Man's position 
as a product, listen, it's not because of an unfortunate lack of information, it's a deliberate rejection of the information that God exists, that he's a holy God, that he's a God of wrath. Don't want that. Hate that. Deny that. And this, God will not tolerate. Every truth revealed by man has been fought against, uh, revealed by man, by God, I should say, to man, has been fought against, disregarded, and deliberately obscured. Listen, when Copernicus, the Jewish astronomer, started to study the heavens, he gradually came to the conclusion that the earth was not the center around which the universe revolved, but rather it was a moving planet which revolved around the sun. And he was reluctant to publish his findings. Part of it was because of the Catholic Church that had adopted an Aristelian philosophy that said that earth was the center, but through science he said, no, I don't think that's the case. Because man has always felt like he's the center. That everything revolves around him. And to be told otherwise, whether it's by an astronomer or a theologian, has always upset man and given him extreme angst. See, to insist that the core of truth is us and not God that we find our significance ourselves apart from him, that's problematic. And Copernicus, as an astronomer, knew that he's going to have trouble. And they went after him. Humans don't want to know that because they deny who God is. You know, just on a micro level, don't we all like to put ourselves in the middle of a narrative? When we tell our stories, we make ourselves the hero, right? Every marriage struggles from this because every argument starts with my issues, right? You, you short-circuited me. You didn't think of me, Right? We're quick to blame others instead of taking responsibility for our own sin. But see, God knew this. So what does he do? Jesus says it's actually going to be better when he's on the earth that I go away because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will now be inside of you. And see, this job of revealing and convicting the world of sin has to be an inside job, and that is what the Holy Spirit is doing. He has to initiate this truth in our hearts to show us this kind of denial that we often do. In John 16, 8, it says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is proving to us when we are in the wrong. But... We as humans naturally suppress the truth. We don't want to see our sin. We don't want to see our flaws. You know, 
And I mentioned in the first service about how pastors always like to give a story of how they're over their sin. They're victorious. But rarely do you hear a story about the guy who's in the middle of the problem, has a problem. I don't have the answer. Here's my problem. Now, that's real vulnerability. It's not too vulnerable when I say, yeah, you know, I used to struggle with this thing called lust, or I used to struggle with lying, but now God has given me victory. I haven't done that in 15 years, right? Okay? Yeah, right. But see, that's what we do. I like what Tim Keller said, points out that we humans have a way of rationalizing like a guy in the mafia who'll say, yeah, I kill people, but I'm good to my mama. Okay? We create this other ethic to make ourselves look good. Okay? And, and we do this. We have kind of a, a refined sense of denial with our sin, uh, saying something like, I'm not gossiping. I, I'm just warning you, I, you need to know this about this person. Hmm. Or, I'm not arrogant, I'm just confident. Okay? I'm not abrasive, I, I just speak the truth, I'm straightforward. Okay? I'm not a coward, I just like being careful. Or, I don't drink too much, I'm just the life of the party. The Bible makes clear all humans are naturally in denial about sins like this. We suppress the truth. We actively hide. We, we lessen the intensity. We hold back the truth, especially as it relates to our own sin and our need of God. The end result of wickedness is to bury the truth of God under a mountain of rationalizations and evil behavior. And verse 18 begins to lay Paul's groundwork for his case about man's self-righteousness. And his aim is to show how we, in and of ourselves, and the entire world, is morally bankrupt. Unable to receive a favorable verdict from God. But we are desperately in need of divine mercy and pardon. Enter the gospel. Enter Christ. And that's what makes it such wonderful news. That in the midst of my sin, God loved me. Fully. And forgives me. Fully. Because of what Christ has done on the cross. That's worth celebrating. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church Podcast. 